Well, if you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Uh, if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and find 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to be here. We've got just two sermons left in this series. Uh, so if, you, if you're new and you just want, you know, what is this book about? You picked a great Sunday because that's, that's what we're going to talk about for the next two weeks here. Uh, this is a... Um, this is a pretty important section because Paul is coming to the end of all of his writing, all of his pleading, all of the examples uh, of his ministry. He's defended himself. He's, he's talked with the church about uh, pleading with them to join in giving, to meet the needs of those poor saints who in other places, other countries. Uh, he's talked about his conscience. He's talked about uh, how hard it's been for him to be an apostle and to bring them the message, uh, all while defending himself from false apostles who are in the church. So as we come to these last two messages, it's as if Paul sits back and he finishes writing all of the pleading and the urging and the encouraging that he's been doing, and he puts a period on his letter, and then he puts it in the hands of Titus who is going to deliver it. And all of what Paul is going to do in these next two things is talk about his future visit. He's going to talk about that time when he arrives and shows up in the church. Uh, there comes a time when an apostle has said all that he's going to say, where he has made every kind of argument and plea and urging for this church to obey and listen to the one true apostle, the Christ-anointed apostle of their church, and then he's got to wait. He's got to sit back. And he's got to see, what is this church going to do with what I've written to them? Now, Paul's been encouraged in this letter because he's had Titus come back after the severe letter that Titus brought, where Titus gave a report and said, the church listened to you, Paul. But there are still people in this church, an unrepentant minority, who still won't listen to you. And what Paul is going to do in these last two sections, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 12. If you'll see verse 11 there, the heading over that section in your Bible is concerns for the Corinthian church. And then chapter 13 starts with final warnings. So Paul uh, is going to finish this letter concerned. And what, uh, you know, when this... Uh, this section particularly of 2 Corinthians is an important one, not just for the Corinthian church, but for Citadel Square as well. Because like the Corinthian church, we are receiving the letter of 2 Corinthians. And if you've noticed throughout our work in this book and our studies in this book, Paul has consistently asked the church to respond in light of the gospel they say they believe. So isn't that where we are? We're in the same spot as a church, are we? Whether it's the Corinthian church or whether it's 2022, every single church has to deal with the gospel message and not just believe it, not just assent to it intellectually. When we gather together as a church, our goal is not just to make you intellectually brilliant, but our goal when we preach and teach the word of God and counsel and disciple the word of God and pour into the next generation of believers in, play, in this place is to aim at life transformation. Amen? So throughout the course of how many ever sermons you've ever listened to, the goal is not get it, checking the box and saying, well, I'm, I'm 30 now. I've listened to 50 times 30, what, 1,500 sermons. I'm doing good. The goal in 
a church is for the church to grow in life transformation. Ideally, we should be growing, right? Well, Paul has already said in this book that we should be growing from one degree of glory to what? To another, which means we should be constantly changing. Men should begin to look more like Christ. Women should begin to look more like Christ, that our lives should be brought increasingly under the authority of God's word through the power of the spirit in the context of the community of God's people. So you are meant to be changing, amen? Amen. Now, if you don't agree with me, elbow the person next to you and tell them you should be changing, if that's easier for you, right? All of us ought to be on a trajectory of continual spiritual renewal and transformation in our lives. I want that for me. Do you want that for you? Well, what Paul is going to do in this section of 2 Corinthians is take you from the beginning of his relationship with the church. He's going to look back on this fool's speech that he's been giving. And then he's going to say, I began this journey with you. And then Paul is going to introduce a an element of relational distance where Paul is going to talk about the delegates he sent to this church. And then Paul, at the end, he's going to paint a picture. And he's going to say, there's something that really concerns me. Because here we are, generations removed from the first century. And there are a variety of churches led by a variety of elders in a variety of places. And a church grows and is healthy only as it stays true to the gospel message that it's believed and then puts it into practice, right? That's what a healthy church is. A healthy church is not just growing in knowledge. A healthy church is growing in active, loving, servant-hearted, self-sacrificial obedience for Christ to others. Well, Paul's going to give you a picture at the end and say, I'm scared that the gospel hasn't done that in you. So the challenge for all of us as we reach the end of our time together is to ask, is the gospel transforming me? Is the gospel transforming our church in two particular ways? Paul's going to give you two particular ways that he would say the gospel is changing a church. So, you ready for that? Uh, yeah, yeah, I know, not quite. You've elbowed your friend and you want them to change. Elbow your friend again and tell them this is for you. This is your message for you today. So we can't apply it personally, but you've got people in the list that you want to apply it to. That's fine. Let's do this. Let's pray and we'll ask God for his grace here on our time. Father, thanks for these children. Thanks for these families. And Father, we pray again that we would be families that entrust the gospel truths, the glory of Jesus Christ, the beauty of the Trinitarian God into the hands of our children. That our children would fear God, would walk in your ways, would love you with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as themselves. Father, for these few minutes as we look at your word, we pray that you would transform us, that you would do things to change our lives, change our friendships and our relationships, our marriages, our parenting, that you would invade the areas of our life that we have a tendency to believe are off limits, and that you would lay claim to our hearts in such a way that not just we believe more things about you, but we put into practice the truth we say we believe. So, Father, bless us in our ambition to honor you with our lives, with our words, with our attention, and our affections. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, we finished last week in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through uh, about 10, looking at Paul's weakness. You remember that? Where Paul has, has shared with us what it's like to really walk with God, to come to the end of himself, to be desperate and dependent on God and his grace. And we said that through that struggle, Paul has shown us that God likes us insufficient. God likes us depending on him. God loves to lavish his grace upon insufficient, unable, weak people. Amen? That's the great news of Paul's prayer life, where Paul will say, there are thorns and things that I struggle with and I come to the end of myself, but when I am weak, it's right at that point where God's grace is sufficient and I am strong. Well, Paul closes what he, the argument that he's been building for us really all since uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you just turn back a page, begins Paul's fool's speech where he boasts in things that you wouldn't boast in. He would talk about things that are impressive uh, or that aren't that impressive in contrast to the false apostles who boast in things that the world values, that man sees as important. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Now turn back to 2 Corinthians 12 verse 11 and look at what Paul says. I have been a fool. So everything from 11 verse 1 to 12 verse 11 has been Paul's rant and boasting. And if you remember, Paul's talked about his suffering. He's talked about his weakness. He's talked about his ministry convictions, his refusal to take money. He's continuously overturned man-centered boasting in favor of Christ-centered boasting, telling us that it's not who commends himself that is approved, but it's the one who the Lord commends. So now as Paul closes this line of thinking, he closes with these couple of verses here where he says, I have been a fool. All of what I've been saying up to this point has proven to you that I am acting like a fool. I am boasting not as the Lord would, but as a fool would. You forced me to it. Which is Paul's way of saying, I had to address you on your level. You have the world's values. I've got to come in and speak that language so that you would understand what I'm saying to you. You've backed me into a corner, for I ought to have been commended by you. Now, it takes somebody profoundly humble and bold like Paul, who's reliant alone on God's grace, to tell the church that they should have valued him more. That sounds pretty arrogant, doesn't it? But all since all the way through Paul's argument where he says, open wide your heart to me. I have opened wide my heart to you. You should have returned the love and investment and sacrifice that I've made towards you. Now this word commend is something that's been all throughout 2 Corinthians. All the way in the beginning back in chapter 3, Paul has said, we're not commending ourselves because you're our letter of commendation. The fact that the gospel's taken root at you, that there have been conversions in our midst because of my preaching commends the gospel that we preach. And then Paul talks about his conscience telling the church that we're giving you reason to boast in us rather than boasting in those who would like to boast in the external things, the outward appearance of things. We want to give you a foundation for commendation. And then Paul moves through his argument into chapter 6 saying that his ministry sufferings commend himself. He said, I've suffered for you. I've worked for you. It's cost me to bring you the gospel. And then all the way into chapter 10, as I said, where he's looking to not the man's commendation, but the Lord's commendation. 
So I think you would agree that this church ought to follow the Apostle Paul, right? It's the unspoken conviction all the way throughout this letter that this church is wandering away and following false apostles, people they should not follow, they should not listen to, they should not give to, they should not devote themselves to. This church is failing to value the right leaders, the right Christ-centered, Christ-anointed apostles. Now watch what Paul says in the remainder of the verse, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles. This is not a competition. Remember, Paul has worked this, this angle all the way through the past couple chapters where he said, I'm not going to boast and classify myself the way these false apostles do. I'm not writing a resume. In fact, I've suffered so much, I've been let down a window in a basket. I've had these visions and revelations, but those aren't the things that commend me to you. And those aren't the things that make me inferior. While they may evaluate Paul based on worldly ability to speak or his physical presence or the fact that they critique him because his letters are strong, but in present, when he's present with them, he's meek. He said, that doesn't make me inferior. And then Paul gives us another reminder of who Paul believes uh, he is. All through this tension with Paul and the church, he has he's dealt with this back and forth where he's got to deal with the church's values, with the way the church looks at leadership. And by the, end, by the time we get to the end of Paul's vision and thorn that we looked at last week, would you agree that Paul has been exposed? He's been weak. He's been humble. He's been at the end of himself. He's been insufficient to the task of ministry as an apostle. He's wounded, he's broken, he's profoundly dependent on God and his grace alone. And here, he takes a man-to-man centered approach where he says, it's not that I'm inferior to these super apostles, these apostles that you think are so great. I'm not inferior. But at the same time, look at how he regards, he regards himself, even though I am nothing. You know, all through the Bible, When people encounter God, it is a um, profoundly humbling experience. One of the things that you can be sure of when you work your way through the Bible is that when people encounter God, they are humbled to the end of themselves. And as Paul closes his prayer life for us, in chapter 12, verse 10, just a couple verses prior He has revealed that what he believes about himself is so essential to his ministry. What he believes about himself is that nothing can be accomplished in the spiritual realm apart from God and his grace working in our lives. Nothing. God doesn't need resumes to work with people, he doesn't need gifting, he doesn't need successful stories. He doesn't need profound sufficiency or backgrounds or degrees or educational experience. What Paul shows us, who has all of those things and more because of his pre-Christ experience, when he meets Jesus, he goes, I am not worthy of anything. All that God wants to do in me is because of God and his willingness to use me by his grace. So Paul is profoundly humbled as he understands his ministry calling. I'm not inferior to those guys, even though I'm nothing. God doesn't need me. God doesn't have to use me. God chooses to use me because of his glorious grace. 
So now all of Paul's life has lived in light of the fact that it's grace that strengthens him. It's grace that affirms him. Even though he is nothing and he doesn't need to be used by God, it's grace that causes him to persevere. All of Paul's life in connection to Jesus Christ is profoundly amazed at the grace that Christ has shown him. Now, look at verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you. Now, Paul is going to go back. Paul at, at Corinth, he has ministered in this church for just under two years. His first um, assignment, when he went to there to preach the gospel initially, he was there for a year and a half. And he's had a couple of different visits in between. We don't know the visit that he came where he rebuked them that he'll talk about here in a minute. The visit where he came and then he retreated because he wanted this church's heart. But Paul goes back to the beginning of his relationship with his church and said, there were signs of a true apostle that were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Now let me talk about this for just a second. Paul is now in contrast to the super apostles. Remember what we talked about with the signs or the visions and revelations from Paul? Where Paul said, if I were to boast of these things, I wouldn't be a fool, which means I wouldn't be telling you a lie. I could tell you true things about them, but I don't do that, those, so that you might not think more of me than you ought to think. Remember that? Paul's aware of how the church might exalt him too highly. But at the same time, Paul will say here in one verse that when he arrived, he validated his ministry with signs, wonders, and mighty works. Signs, wonders, and mighty works happen throughout your Bible really in about three places. They happen in the ministry of Moses and Joshua. Acts 7 talks about God validating the message that came through Moses with signs and wonders. Signs, wonders, and miracles show up in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Got law, you with me? Prophets, and then we have the one, the third place they show up in your Bible is with Christ and the Apostles. And consistently, signs and wonders are meant to validate both that God is doing a new thing, they're meant to validate the message, and they're meant to validate the messenger. So when Paul says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works, what Paul is saying is that God is witnessing the message that I preach. You with me so far? So Paul, in the context of this church, says, I'm a true apostle because the message that I preach is witnessed by God in heaven through signs and wonders. Remember when Jesus uh, healed the man let down through the roof, the paralytic? And the man gets let down through the roof, and Jesus is standing there, the whole house is full, and he looks at the man and he says, your sins are forgiven. And immediately what happens in the minds and hearts of the religious leaders of the day is they start questioning in themselves, and they start saying, who but God can forgive sins. How can this man say he's forgiving sins? And Jesus turns to them and he goes, so that you would know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your mat and walk. What did Jesus just do? He validated that what he said about forgiving sins is validated by the miracle, by the sign, by the wonder. What is Paul doing? Paul is making sure that you would listen and pay attention to his preaching because God is witnessing of this. Let me show you this in one place. We don't have time to do all of a biblical theology on this, but turn to your right to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews makes this very plain 
in the changing between the old covenant and the new covenant. Now in Hebrews chapter 1, we talk about Christ and his preeminence. But in Hebrews chapter 2, the author writes this, Hebrews 2 verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Speaking of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Speaking of the law. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to us by those who heard. Jesus Christ, the apostolic witness. Verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gift of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What happened when the gospel was preached at Pentecost? God validated the message through the apostles, through Peter, through Paul, through the twelve, that this message was reliable and God was agreeing with it by, do, by doing miracles, signs, mighty works. Now, come back to verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you, which is, in the Greek, you wouldn't see this in the English, but in the Greek, it's a passive verb, which means they were done by somebody else through Paul, which affirms what happens in Hebrews chapter 2. God says, amen, that's a good message. Paul, you're committed to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen, that's a good message. And God applauds and God agrees by giving signs and wonders. Now, I want you to look at one more thing in this verse that I think is important. You'll read right by it if you're not paying attention because Paul attaches one other incredibly important thing to the signs and wonders that he does in Corinth. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. Now, Patience in the book of 2 Corinthians has to do with enduring suffering. So here's Paul, the apostle, who goes into this new mission area, begins to preach Jesus Christ, and then begins to experience the consequences of suffering for his name. So Paul puts three things together. His identity as a true apostle, the validation of God in heaven, and the hatred of mankind. In one verse, in his ministry in the city of Corinth. So when Paul says, we've had to endure suffering, Paul is not leveraging the signs of a true apostle to build his bank account, build his reputation, build his platform. When Paul says the signs were done, Paul is burdened from the Lord. All of Paul's ministry in the book of 2 Corinthians is done with the, uh, before the eyes of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that every single consequence that comes because of Paul's preaching actually validates the message. You with me so far? Now, why does this matter for 2022? There aren't any more apostles. Hebrews chapter 1 says that in the past, many times in many ways, God spoke to us through his prophets. And these last times, God has spoken to us through his, his son. So if the prophetic order, if Ephesians 2.20 is right, that the church is built upon the foundation of, of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ being its cornerstone, how do we validate ministries today? How do we do that? Because I'm not laying hands on the, on the crippled and making them walk. Right? Say yes. Okay, good. 
could have gone bad, Lord. What are we going to do? Here's how you do it. You do it with what is transferable from Paul's life. How does a church stick to the apostolic message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, right? What makes a church? How does a church handle the fact that people are taken from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? You've got to have not just the priority of Christian doctrine that is handed down through the apostolic witness in God's word. You've got to have conversions that are a proof of lives being changed. Has your life been changed by Jesus Christ? Raise your hand. Right? You've got, you're the letter. We don't preach a, a gospel message that has no electricity, no current going to it. You could give me a hundred life change stories in here because of Jesus Christ. Number three, you look at leaders who aren't out for a platform, but who are willing to sacrificially serve the people of God. Hasn't that been Paul, what Paul's ambition has been? It doesn't matter what kind of difficulty you put in front of the Apostle Paul. He continues to love and serve and prioritize the good of the people of God. You with me so far? So what are you looking for in Christian leadership in 2022? It's not signs, miracles, and wonders. It's men and women with the courage to take a stand on the truth of God's word. It's men and women who are willing to lay down their life for others. Like who? Like Jesus Christ did. It's men and women who are willing to give their life, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, to be disciples and make disciples. Everybody wants the Christian life to result in a platform and more money, more significance, more reputation, and more visibility. But when you step into life like an apostle, do you want to suffer like Paul? Yeah, me either. But is that what God is calling us to? Isn't that what it's going to take for us to walk in steps of faithfulness in the culture that we live in today? Now, Paul says, I started. I started this ministry among you. It was validated by God himself. Now look at verse 13. It's fascinating to me that the Corinthian church was sent a true apostle, somebody who saw the risen Christ, who started this church. And now this church continues to peck at Paul. They continue to believe little lies that erode their confidence in this apostle. Imagine seeing Paul lay hands on people and then be healed. Imagine that happening in your midst and then going, I'm not sure Paul's that good with money. I don't know. He might not like us that much. He won't even let us give him $100 for his ministry. He might not even be a true apostle. Look at 13. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? Paul continues. He just keeps hammering sarcasm. What were you less favored than the rest of the churches except that I myself didn't burden you? Which means I didn't charge you for my ministry. Forgive me this wrong. Verse 14, here for the third time I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden. Now, Paul's ministry convictions with money had first to do with distinguishing himself from the false apostles. You remember that? Where he says, I'm not going to take your money lest it be said that we work on the same terms as these other false apostles. And what I do, I will continue to do. 
to undermine the claim of those who say we work on the same terms. I will not do it because I'm going to distinguish my ministry from these false apostles who only want your money. They only want to abuse you. They only want to strike you in the face. They only want to manipulate you and take. Here when Paul talks about money though, it's as if he sits across from the church at the table and he takes their hands and he looks them in the eye and he says, I don't want your stuff. Look at me, look at me. I don't want your money because I won't be a burden to you because I don't seek what is yours, which is what? Right? Your money, your stuff, your affirmation, your, your, um, your contributions. I don't seek that. I seek you. I'm in this for you. You matter so much to me that I want to take money motivations off the table. Because what I'm after is not your support. What I am after is your heart. Now, this is incredibly dangerous for a spiritual leader. It's incredibly dangerous when money gets involved. Because when money gets involved, doesn't it taint the relationship? When money gets involved, we're not quite sure why we're in this relationship. There might be an ulterior motive. And if the spiritual leader puts himself between the church and Christ and seeks to leverage platform, resources, recognition, what he does is begin to divide the relationship between Christ and the church. And he begins to be the recipient of perks. He goes, this is all great preaching to the people of God as long as the people of God fill my pockets, as long as the people of God affirm me, as long as the people of God respect me, as long as the people of God provide me a platform for the things that I want and that I need. So Paul looks a lot like John the Baptist who said, a man cannot receive anything unless it is granted to him from heaven. Jesus must what? Increase. I must decrease. And Paul says, I won't let money dictate our relationship because you're too important to me. Uh, you remember, a guy, there's a guy in the Old Testament, you might not remember the story. Remember the story of Naaman? There's a story of Naaman who has leprosy. Naaman comes to Elisha and Elisha tells him, here's what you got to do. You got to go bathe in the river and you got to bathe seven times. And Naaman has a terrible argument and he, and he walks away all grumpy because he thinks there are better rivers where he's from in Syria than there are in the nation of Israel. And he's got a servant and the servant comes to him and says, hey, if Elisha went and told you something really, really great and amazing to do, wouldn't you do it? If he told you to throw backflips and handsprings and do a sacrifice and all, don't you think you would do it? All he's asking you to do is go wash in this dirty river. And you can just get this picture of Naaman in this story kind of going, I guess, I don't know. I'm going to go do this and I'm going to wash. And he washes seven times and he comes out and it says his skin was clean, right? Now Naaman comes back to Elisha. And Elisha has a servant, a guy named Gehazi. So here comes Naaman. Naaman comes back. He says, listen, I've got money. I've got clothes. I've got jewels, precious stones, all of these sorts of things. I want to thank the man of God. And Elisha says, no, I'm not taking a dime. And you've got Gehazi sitting there going, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of clothes. 
Two talents of silver, that's a lot of money, a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Name, uh, Elisha refuses, Naaman leaves, and Gehazi gets it in his brain that he's going to go and he's going to ask. He's going to weave this story with Naaman and say, oh, hey, Naaman, just as you were leaving, just as you're about to go out of the site, I wanted to stop you and let you know that Elisha had some buddies from the sons of the prophets. It's his, it's his training school. These guys showed up and they've got no clothes, they've got no money, they've got nothing to support themselves. And Naaman goes, absolutely, I'll pay, I'll give, I'll, I'll make sure that these guys are taken care of. Take a couple of clothes, take, hey, take a jacket for yourself, take this money. And Gehazi comes back and he doesn't go and talk to Elisha, he hides everything and he puts everything away. And then he goes and he talks to the man of God, the prophet of God, the one who gives revelations from God on high. And he thinks this is going to work. And he walks in and he talks to Elisha. And Elisha said, didn't my heart go with you when you went to talk to Naaman? And then he says, Gehazi, Naaman's leprosy is going to stick with you the rest of your life. And it's this story where you have God of heaven and earth giving free, by grace alone, faith alone, message of healing and hope and salvation. And there's a guy there who says, can I make some money off of that deal? And this is what Paul is talking about. How dare you fleece the people of God? How dare you take the gospel of free grace alone from God in heaven and on earth? You're telling me that I can come to God by doing nothing other than trusting in everything that Jesus Christ has done? Yes. I don't have to give any money. No. All I got to do is believe. Yes. And all my sins are forgiven. Yes. And you are immediately made right with God. Yes. There's no money involved. No money. It's totally free. God has paid it all. He sent Jesus. You are free. You're forgiven. You're redeemed. Isn't that awesome? Yes and amen. And Paul says, I'm not going to charge because the gospel is worth not charging for, essentially. Right? I'm not going to let money get in the way of God's free grace. I'm not going to let money taint the equation. Because listen, church, I'm not after your money, I'm after your heart. Now look at what he says in the reign of 14. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Remember what Paul said back in chapter 11 that uh, as a father, I betrothed you to one husband. I was like a good dad preparing you to meet your future husband. Here, Paul says, I'm like a good dad because I have richly provided everything for you. I don't want any of your money. I don't need your validation of my ministry. I'm here to talk about the grace of God for you, and I'm going to richly provide that message so that you would be reminded that God loves you, God has forgiven you, God has redeemed you because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. So Paul says, I'm like a good parent. It's my obligation. Verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Don't you love taking care of and providing for your kids? My wife and I look at each other sometimes and we sit around the table and we know stories of kids who don't have enough to eat and we give thanks that our kids can eat. We give thanks that I can give my little girls things that they shove in their mouth as fast as they can. I love it. Because it's our obligation to save up for their parents. Isn't something wrong in the parent-child relationship if in the relationship the child always suffers the consequences? Isn't there a problem where we go, where is the parent who's willing to sacrifice and suffer for the weak, 
who's willing to sacrifice and suffer for the little ones. And Paul says, I'll gladly do it. I'll gladly spend and be spent all the way poured out. You ever spent too much money on your kids? Say amen. You've spent too much money on your kids. Isn't it great? Say it's great. It's great. I love getting them stuff. I love pouring out on them. How much does Paul love this church? I love, I'm gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? What's the answer? Say no. No. There ought to be reciprocity in the relationship. There ought to be fidelity. There ought to be a mutual sharing because of the beauty of Jesus Christ between this apostle and this church. Verse 16, but granting that I myself didn't burden you, I was crafty, as you say, and got the better of you by deceit. This is, uh, you got to kind of read behind what Paul is saying here. Paul, when he comes to the church, says he won't charge, right? You remember that? I'm not going to charge for thy ministry. I'm going to distinguish myself from the false apostles. I'm not going to charge because I want your heart. I don't want your stuff. But the church now, the critique that's floating around in the church is that, well, Paul keeps sending these guys who are delegates. He keeps sending Titus and the, the brother who's famous for preaching the gospel and the brother who's been tested by many and found faithful. I know what's happening. Paul's delegates are collecting money from us and Paul won't ask for money, but his boys will make sure that Paul gets paid. I know what's happening, Paul. I am on to you. You say I was crafty and got the better of you by deceit. Verse 17, did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? 18, I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Listen to me. What is Paul's goal in discipleship? It's not just handing the belief system on to the next generation. Paul believes that the next generation of spiritual leaders need to hear, not need to hear doctrine, but they also need to carry on convictions. They need to have some yes and no to them. They need to have some spiritual courage in their day and age. And when Paul says, I sent to you Titus and the other brother, you can see in them my own imprint. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. How does Christian discipleship work in the church? It's not just I get as smart as the guy who discipled me, but I begin to put in practice my own convictions, my own uh, courageous spiritual stands. These are men who show up in the Corinthian church and have courage. They have standards. So for you to critique Paul means you've got to critique Titus, the brother, the guy who's been voted on by churches, and Paul himself. So it just kind of gets, the critique starts to get weak when you have consistency of character in the leadership, where you're looking from one generation to the next and go, they continue to have courage. They continue to have principles. They continue to not take money. In Exodus 18, Moses' father-in-law comes to him and he rebukes him for being, uh, kind of making all ministry decisions funnel through himself. He bottlenecks caring for the people of God. And when Jethro challenges him, 
What he tells them, what he tells, uh, I'm sorry, when Jethro challenges Moses, he tells Moses, here are the kind of guys that you need around you, Moses. I'm going to read this to you. This is Exodus 18. This is what Jethro says to Moses. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens." See, leadership in God's church doesn't just require attendance and talent. It requires character. Right? Amen? Listen, young guys, young ladies, when you go into your first uh, assignment, your second or third job, they've got more than enough talent. And if you follow Jesus Christ, the contribution you're going to make to that group of people is your character, not your talent. The way that God's leaders are distinguished in the church is not because they're fancy, they're great speakers. Not because they're tall, fast, and strong, and they can run the 40 in under five seconds. God's leaders are called because of their courageous perseverance and their character. Amen? What are we looking for? We're looking for men and women of character. And Paul says... This accusation doesn't hold water because the men that I send to you walk in the same steps that I do. They have the same principles. They have the same convictions. They won't let money get in the way. Verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? Isn't that a great question? Because in this conversation of back and forth, it can feel like Paul has been pouring himself out and is just waiting on the affection of the church to come back to him. That Paul, in a sense, is emotionally, he's like a jilted lover. He's he's emotionally dependent on whether or not the church will accept him. And Paul turns all of that around right here. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. When Paul speaks and Paul preaches and Paul goes about his ministry, he has his eyes on the pleasure of Jesus Christ for what he's calling him to do. Your, which, which is incredibly dangerous for a church. Because Paul, all through 2 Corinthians, continues to keep his eyes on Jesus Christ as he preaches. His eyes on Jesus Christ as he confronts the church. His eyes on what is pleasing to Jesus Christ in this moment. If you're a spiritual leader, if you're a spiritual leader in your family, if you're a spiritual leader in a church or in a ministry, the question you continuously have to be asking is, is Jesus Christ pleased with this decision? Would Jesus Christ stand next to me and say amen? And Paul says, it's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, my beloved. So Paul's leadership conviction is that Christ would be pleased and the church would be built up. Now, I want to zoom out and talk about Citadel Square in 2022. You understand where Paul's going? You see Paul's fight for the heart of this church? 
Up to this point in the book of 2 Corinthians, there have been one thing that has scared Paul. There's one thing that when Paul thinks about this church, he's afraid. And it shows up in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn back to chapter 11, verse 1. I read this for you in the beginning of Paul's speech, but Paul is going to begin and end his fool's speech with fear. Because what Paul is about to do in these next two verses is paint a picture of what could be. And it causes Paul great consternation, great fear and concern. Look at 11 verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What's Paul's concern for this church? Why is Paul afraid in chapter 11? But that the church would lose the thing that makes them distinct. It would lose their devotion to Jesus Christ. Now that's one thing. There's two more things in two verses. Come back to chapter 12. So Paul says, I've been speaking in the sight of God. It's all for your upbuilding. Everything that I've been doing has, for your, has been for your spiritual good. Verse 20. Y'all there? Did you go back to 1220? Say yes if you're there. Okay. Verse 20. For I fear that perhaps... I fear that this could happen. I'm painting the picture of me writing this letter and putting it in Titus's hands and sealing it up and giving it to him and having to sit back in my recliner and wait to see how this church is going to, to respond. And I don't know how they're going to respond. In fact, I could imagine a scenario where Titus r- returns to the church with this letter in hand and the church doesn't respond the way I want them to respond. They don't respond according to what the b- apostle is asking them to do. They respond differently. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish. My fear is that this church would not listen. Now watch, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish, which means what? Paul is going to have to lay the, I think in Greek it's the smackdown. In 1 Corinthians 4 it says, what would you prefer? I come with you in a spirit of gentleness or with the rod? It's Paul's way of saying, don't make me come up there. Or if your parents lived on the second floor, don't make me come down there. Or in the car. Don't make me come back there. Paul says, I fear that you, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. All sins that have to do with the unity of the church. So here we are in 2022, and we are reading 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and for a church not to respond to the gospel message as preached, for a church not to value the truth of Jesus Christ, will mean that inevitably the church begins to be filled with divisions and factions and teams and relational conflict that is not healed. And Paul says, I fear that you might not listen to me and the effects of your refusal to listen will be the erosion of church unity. The effects will be not that you love one another. 
but like Paul says in Galatians, that you bite and devour one another. How do you know a church has lost the primacy of Jesus Christ and the gospel? It shows up in the relationships. It shows up in people who would say, I don't talk, yeah, we both believe in Jesus. Isn't Jesus great? I love Jesus. Jesus is awesome. But Dave over here, you know who I don't like? Dave. I don't like Dave either. Isn't Jesus great? Man, I love Jesus. I love thinking about Jesus. I'm sure glad Jesus saved me, but man, I wish he didn't save Dave. Because I can't put up with Dave, and Dave's annoying, and I've got to bear with him, and, and our unity is fractured. And is there any power in the gospel message to reconcile people who don't agree? Is there any resource that we have? Why, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, do we remember Jesus Christ, repent of our sins, and reconcile with one another? Because we believe Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, like Paul says in the book of Ephesians, has broken down the wall of hostility. That means if you are in perpetual conflict with other people, you have forgotten the power of Jesus Christ to heal relationships. And Paul says, I'm concerned that if you don't listen, the brokenness that is going to characterize your church is going to show up in your relationships. I'm scared that you aren't devoted to Jesus Christ anymore. How do I know? Because I'm scared that your relationships are poisoned and your relationships are, are characterized by quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. What kind of church do you want us to be? What kind of church do you want us to be? How important is Jesus Christ to healing the relational divides that, that exist in this room right now? How willing are we to put down our weapons of war and move toward one another in reconciling peace because of Jesus Christ? That will determine the health of our church. That will determine our love and care and concern and our witness in this city and the people who come in that we talk to and shake hands with, and that we move toward one another in relationship. Not just in kind of benign apathy for the people who are in this room, but active, sacrificing, loving, Christ-centered service. So I'm scared, Paul says, that that might characterize your church. One more, be encouraged. You encouraged yet? Look at verse, look at what else Paul is scared of. Verse 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. Now, Paul has been humbled already by the sufferings that happened to him from the outside, but when he walks in the doors of the church, what would humble Paul even more is that he's sacrificed, he's served, he's loved, he's poured himself out for these people. And what shows up in the church is ugly. And Paul would be humbled before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This was probably the thing that Paul had to rebuke earlier in the letter that got him ran out of the church. How dare you tell us that the gospel of Jesus Christ has anything to say about our relationships and anything to say about our sexual desires? What do you think? Do you think the gospel of Jesus Christ has anything to heal the relationships that are broken in a church? Do you think the gospel of Jesus Christ has anything to say about our sexuality? I, I mean, 
And both of these, listen church, both of these are really a result of people's Christianity being privatized. Because if your primary metric in your relationship with God is I'm good and Jesus is good and I really like Jesus, but I have no relational obligation to anybody else. It doesn't matter if my brother or sister is suffering then what you are saying is that there's an area of life, your relationships, where Jesus has nothing to say. If that same pattern exists in how we handle our innermost desires, where we go, I can have Jesus say lots of things about my money, about my career, but Jesus has nothing to say about my sexuality, then I'm forgot- I have forgotten what Paul has said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where I have been bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. So what do you think? Does the church in 2022 have any resources to heal relational friction and divide with one another? Does the church have any resources whatsoever to equip men and women for a life of Christ-centered purity? Or are we left just merely to exist, acting and believing like Jesus has risen? but not bring his authority and his power into our day-to-day lives. And this is what scares Paul about the church. This is what worries Paul, that this church might believe that Jesus has risen, might say true doctrinal things, but would have a body of believers characterized by division and perversion rather than others-centered sacrificial service and purity. So we need to ask again, what kind of church are we going to be? Is there any resource we have as we remind ourselves that we are loved by Jesus Christ, that we are forgiven sinners, that we've been given and sealed with the Spirit of God, that Jesus is risen and has something to say about our lives in every orbit of life? These sins, relational sins and sexual sins, are the two most pernicious and I don't, I don't even know what that word means. <laughs> I can't even define it right now. I'm trying to. The most pervasive when it comes to people who live their lives according to their own individual standards. But when you bring your Christian life into the context of a group of people who love and serve and are committed to Jesus, who consider others as more important than themselves, then you begin to see redemption happen in the places where you didn't think Jesus could do anything. I didn't think he could heal that relationship. I didn't think he could break these desires in my heart. But when you step into a body of Christ who lifts up the glory of Jesus, who talks about sinners being redeemed and forgiven and restored to right relationship with God, where there is leadership who is willing to seek not what you have, but seek what is good for you, where you have people in the church who are willing to sacrificially suffer so that others would be built up, others would be encouraged, then you have a witness to a watching world of the power of Jesus Christ in the group of people. I'm done. Father, may we not be people who are characterized by what makes Paul scared. Father, even now, for for the relational brokenness in the room, for, for desires that seem too strong for us to handle and to manage, 
Would we return again, like Paul says, with pure-hearted devotion to the one who loves us? Would we be reminded of the fact that Jesus loves us? Would we be reminded of the fact that there's a God in heaven who sent his son to die on the cross for sinners like us? And Father, would you sow relational peace in this place? Would you sow spiritual courage that gives us the ability to live in a world that has gone crazy when it comes to our sexual desires? And Father, would we be a people who please you, who live in light of the fact that we are known and loved and that Jesus Christ is our hope? It's in his name we pray. Amen.